0: Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History's podcast series on the anti-apartheid movement. My name is Paul Finney, and over the course of the next three weeks I'll be discussing the rise and fall of the British anti-apartheid movement with fellow historians of South Africa, Dr. Matthew Graham and Dr. Chris Fever. Matt is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Dundee, specialising in contemporary politics in South Africa and the history of the continent more generally throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Chris is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of the Free State, primarily focusing upon the intersections of race and criminal justice in Britain and South Africa throughout the 20th century. Currently, they are working on a new project charting Scotland's connection to Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid struggle uh, more generally. In this first episode, we're going to examine the roots of the British anti-apartheid movement in the 1950s and 60s as well as the challenges the movement faced as we go into the 1970s. We believe that by examining the early humanitarian efforts of individual British anti-apartheid pioneers, as well as looking at South Africa's international position in this period, we'll give you a clear understanding of the foundations of the movement, and the precursors behind its success as what's being termed a transnational advocacy network in the latter 20th century. So in the upcoming weeks, we're going to discuss the specific actions of the movement, focusing largely on the explosion of rallies, boycotts and sanctions in the 1970s and 80s, as well as the British anti-apartheid movement's legacy today in activism. But in this introductory session, I'd like to come to a general consensus on how an idea such as anti-apartheid enters the public consciousness in Britain in a time before global activism was a popular concept. So the first question I'd just like to ask is how did anti-apartheid activism begin in Britain and who were its main proponents Matt?
1: So first of all the core trigger for the anti-apartheid movement is the Sharpeville massacre uh, which happened in March 1960. For those of you who don't know what the Sharpeville Massacre was, this is where a anti-pass campaign organised by one of the liberation movements, the Pan-Africanist Congress, saw 69 of its supporters uh, shot by police in the township known as Sharpeville. Now, this was a, a moment that kind of shocked the world. You know, here were unarmed protesters, many of them shot in the back. The crucial thing is, though, that this is just this is a trigger. Obviously, anti-apartheid had long roots beforehand, well into the 1950s and even before. And there are a series of of factors and causes as to why people became more involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. So Sharpeville was like the pinnacle moment that drew people into activism and into a greater awareness of the brutality of apartheid in South Africa for the black majority. But there were necessary steps and platforms beforehand. Um, I know Chris will talk about some of these as well, but I'm I'm just going to mention one or two um, straight off. I think the first of all is in the uh, post-World War II era, there is a a rise in kind of anti-colonial activism. So there are organisations such as Christian Action, the Movement for Colonial Freedom, where people um, in Britain are working with Uh, Indigenous leaders from other parts of the African continent, helping them to seek independence from the British Empire. So again, it demonstrated the ways in which people in the UK could take a form of positive action to helping other people um, gain freedom and also a sense of social justice. So this is a beginning of some of those transnational advocacy dimensions which you mentioned in your introduction. There is also a a large south african exile community in the uk and particularly in london britain is the former colonial power at stake here and the connections run very closely in many aspects of the links between the british government and the apartheid states but also the peoples between the two countries as well i think it's a really important point that we'll probably build upon over the next couple of podcasts But in the late 1950s, there is a growing number of exiles from South Africa. So we have people like Tennyson Makawani, uh, Bella Pile and Abdul Minty who are all in London and they are there publicising the brutality of apartheid. We must remember that most people are not really paying attention to what apartheid does to the uh, the majority of the South African population. Um, And so having these kind of first-hand testimonies is a way of spreading the word increasing that publicity and education about apartheid but equally it is also building up those connections it is making uh those key figures kind of central spokes in a network and again this is something we'll be talking about i'm sure over the next few weeks is this idea of a network so i thought those are a couple of key things i think chris has got plenty more to say but um yeah those those are mine like like sharpville the colonial context, and
2: also the exile community. Yeah, and just building on what Matt uh, was saying there, I think one of the key points to mention is that when apartheid and anti-apartheid starts to enter the public consciousness in the 1950s, it's mainly driven uh, through religious figures, many of the missionaries who were based in South Africa, who had experience of the apartheid regime. So... Just to give a few examples, there's Michael Scott, Canon John Collins, and crucially Trevor Huddleston, who rose to public prominence in this period as sort of opponents of apartheid. Huddleston's an interesting figure in, in the sense that he was based largely in a township in, in Johannesburg, like Sophia Town, and he basically was recalled to Britain in the mid-1950s by the church and released a book in 1956, which, is called, which was called Not For Your Comfort. This book is actually quite a seminal moment for many people and actually having interviewed quite a lot of anti-apartheid activists over the years, they they often mention reading this book as a key moment in their politicization around the apartheid issue. I think this book sold over 100,000 copies and really made a, um, a dent on the public consciousness. And just from some of my own research, which has been exploring the Scottish aspect of anti party activism in Britain, I just wanted to make a few comments about that. Firstly, the patterns and the way in which anti party emerged in Scotland is broadly similar to what happens in Britain, in the sense that it's religious figures who framed anti party as a moral cause, some of the anti-colonial organisations that Matt talked about as well. So in Scotland, a key figure would be Reverend Kenneth McKenzie and organisations like the Scottish Council for African Questions, which were linked to the Labour Party. And they were really key in driving anti-apartheid activism in Scotland. Matt also mentioned South African exiles and, and, and their importance. And, and in Scotland, one particular exile, Cecil Williams, plays a particularly important role. An interesting fact about Cecil Williams is that he was the driver for Nelson Mandela on the day he was arrested for and um, the Rivonia Ro- trial, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. But after um, being Im- imprisoned at the same time as Mandela, Cesar Williams fled to Glasgow, and played a key role in developing anti-apartheid structures in Glasgow and in, and in Scotland more broadly.
1: One, one thing I'd like to also add um, upon what Chris had been saying then uh, it's also we must remember that a lot of the activism, even if it is uh, driven by some of the exiles, is that there, many people in the UK are responding to actions that are occurring in South Africa. So, for example, during the 1950s, there is the the treason trial, which sees many of the key ANC leaders or the Congress Alliance leaders uh, arrested and and put on trial for for high treason. So this is obviously getting reported back in the British press and obviously people are aware, again, of the the ills of, of apartheid. We also must bear in mind the the boycott committee as well. So one of the main mobilising tools in in 1959 is this issue of the boycott, which becomes an enduring legacy for the anti-apartheid movement across its history. And this is a direct response to the ANC's president, Chief Latuli, who asks the international community to begin to isolate and boycott apartheid South Africa. And so activists, in the UK take up this call and begin to organise and mobilise on this issue, which again draws greater interest into um, the, uh, the brutality of the apartheid state, but also begins to demonstrate practical ways of beginning to also provide a challenge from afar. So these are also in this other kind of context that we must bear in mind as part of the uh, creation of the anti-apartheid movement and also its entry
0: into a more mainstream consciousness. I agree Matt, I think Sharkville is definitely the main trigger when it gets placed into the public consciousness but let's go before that to the late 1950s when you mentioned the series of exiles, and Chris, you spoke more about religious figures being these stalwarts of the anti-apartheid movement more generally. So, Matt, first, with these exiles, how did they get their message out? There's loads of stuff going on all around the world in terms of civil rights, decolonization. So how did these exiles make public in Britain care about apartheid pre-Sharkville?
1: sharpeville is actually quite a challenge for them, and this must be a noted point as we think about the anti apartheid movement things do not come easily for the uh, the organization or for its its outreach to the general public more broadly in terms of trying to uh, get the message across though this is about human rights it's about social justice it's about freedom and this is kind of, kind of buying into the issues that are occurring around the world that you you already mentioned you know decolonization is really beginning to take, um, take root, especially after uh, Ghana's independence in 1957, and the, the growing move towards uh, global change. But it is hard, because issues of race and racism are still pretty much ingrained in and around the Western world. And so although South Africa is an aberration in what it does, some of the things it does are not that dissimilar from other elements of the status quo at the time but in terms of trying to actually get the message across though they organize rallies they travel all over the UK they write pamphlets and all that kind of stuff so there's a concerted effort to spread the message and to just try to get people to take note but as I said the British connection to South Africa is an integral part of this because of the significant numbers of white British people that live in South Africa and vice versa, and also because of some of the educational and economic links as well. So they, they also play a really key part in driving some of these things.
0: And Chris, you mentioned missionary activity, most notably through Trevor Huddleston, and I'd agree, I think Huddleston has mandelically said that he's done more for the anti-apartheid movement in Britain than anyone else. Within that though, these are obviously missionaries, so what were the kind of objectives of the missionaries within the kind of confines of the church? The first point I would make is that the
2: religious figures that we mentioned there, such as Huddleston, were, I don't know if distance from the church is the the right word. Rob Skinner calls them the turbulent priests, and they were sort of ostracised for their views from sort of what was a deeply conservative institution. Huddleston's an interesting figure because he was a lot more linked to the Congress Alliance in South Africa in the 1950s. So his opposition was a lot more political. I mean, people like Michael Scott also had links to communism in the, the 1930s and 40s as well. But Huddleston was sort of linked to the Congress Alliance, which was the alliance of the main liberation movements in South Africa at the time. So you've got the African National Congress, South African Indian Congress, Congress of Democrats, South African Congress of Trade Union. So he was aligned to them and he he was very much about showing solidarity with the ANC. I mean, I think in terms of broader picture as well, you've actually got, got a sense in the 1950s that this concept of solidarity with African nationalism and the aspirations of African people. And one of the important points about this 1950s era is that this notion of solidarity With the aspirations of the African people was a key component of the missionary opposition to apartheid or anti-apartheid activism and that's a legacy that carried throughout the anti-apartheid movement. So what I mean by that is the sense of allowing African people to to lead and the role of the international community was therefore to express solidarity with their aspirations and not to dictate their ideas and their beliefs. I mean, these these figures are really important as well in promoting some of the tactics that would become key anti-apartheid tactics. Huddleston talked about cultural boycott of South Africa. Others talked about the goods boycott. So these ideas were being established in the 1950s. So the work of these activists and really important in laying the groundwork for what was to come post-Sharkville.
0: So let's move on to Sharkville then and and see how the groundwork has been laid and there is at least in theory there is a vision of what apartheid is in britain and and there there are voices trying to stop it so what changed at sharkville then and what did the role of these earlier anti-apartheid activists comprise of when sharkville occurred
1: so the response is almost immediate they have big rallies immediately after Sharpville in London, where thousands of people come together to campaign and demand the British government to take action. They realize that in the UK, the British public cannot change the South African government, but you can hope to get the British government to make some changes. Now, obviously, those tactics do evolve later on where they do directly challenge the the government in different ways. But at this point, it's about trying to get the British government to act to try and show this solidarity that Chris mentioned a moment ago and their abhorrence to what has occurred in South Africa for people who are demanding their freedoms. The images and the reporting from Sharpeville are one of the first times that the British public get to see what has happened obviously people are aware so you know we've already mentioned things like the treason trial the defiance campaign all those kind of stuff people are aware these things are happening but to see the pictures and to read the reporting that people had been shot by the police while while peacefully protesting is a is a moment where you can't stand by basically that's where people who who are on the progressive side of the british population decide to take a stand now we should also emphasize this is not a majority by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a significant minority of British people who are coming together, and they are able to make a very visual uh, stand, um, and this again is the the roots of the anti-apartheid movement as we come to know it.
0: It definitely seems that they're putting pressure on the British government now. Prior to Sharpeville, it was on universal values, so they're working through missionary activity and exiled speakers to appeal to broadly humanitarian values. Sharpeville was the politicisation of anti-apartheid movement and taking it to the government and saying, well, these are practical things that you can do to make a change. Would you agree that it was forcing political change from above that made the anti-apartheid movement strong or was it more these uh, universal values that were appealed to in the beginning? I think there is
2: definitely an element of Sharkville politicising what had been a sort of moral humanitarian question. Another factor in that, actually, is the ANC, the African National Congress, has turned to armed struggle in the early 1960s as well, which is a direct response to the events in Sharkville. And that creates an issue with a lot of the more humanitarian aspects. There was some unease within that side of anti-apartheid about the ANC's commitment to the armed struggle. And the anti party movement's subsequent relationship with the ANC. So I think it, it, it's key in that sense. I think the moral aspect, of the question of apartheid, is quite a consistent feature throughout the anti party movement's history. So that remains a core aspect of what anti apartheid is about and anti apartheid solidarity. Obviously, it becomes more political in the sense that they're trying to lobby. And that was probably the key activity in in the 1960s, particularly around arms embargoes. And that was one of the issues that the Sharpeville massacre raised because British equipment had reportedly been used by the South African security services. So that raised a lot of questions about arms embargoes. The anti-party movement did a lot of lobbying around getting the British government to try and use their significant power within the United Nations to impose mandatory arms embargoes. Um, in this period. I think your broad point about Sharkville as a politicization. Speaking to activists as well, in the course of our research, the issues of Sharkville are a key politicizing moment for a lot of them.
1: But also just to add a bit more depth as well to what Chris is saying, is that after Sharkville, the ANC and the PAC are both banned as organizations within South Africa. This forces a a rethink within these organizations, not only as, as has already been mentioned, the ANC uh, move to the armed struggle but they also have to establish an exiled structure and people like Oliver Tambo obviously leave South Africa to do this and so again as a direct outcome of Sharpville we see a number of high-ranking people from within the ANC move to the UK not only are they trying to establish their structures and the long-term survival of their organizations they are also reaching out as well and so people like Oliver Tambo are able to then speak directly to the south african people in in far more depth you know yes there were exiles in the 1950s but after 1960 they can go look this is what's happening really please listen to us because we need your help and so that's also a a politicizing moment as well so you have the, the the political organization itself coming part of this
0: with all this pressure then that's building up by the time we get to the 1960s What's stopping the British government from fully denouncing apartheid and bringing these sanctions that the anti-apartheid movement are asking for? I think a
2: key point to make is Sharpeville was quite widely
0: condemned across the the political spectrum
2: in Britain, rhetorically. I mean, there were always some who supported apartheid as a, a political system. The vast majority believed it was wrong. And the question was always about how do you change it? That's where the questions of rhetoric and action come up, and they become quite apparent in the 1960s, particularly from 1964 when Harold Wilson's government come in. Wilson himself had been quite vocal supporters of the anti-party movement and were quite re- closely related. The anti-party movement had quite high hopes for the the Wilson government in this period, and they were quite quickly disillusioned with them and their response. So when they come into power in, in 1964, they do make some Changed. They support a voluntary arms embargo to South Africa. It was a positive step forward, but it also diluted somewhat in the sense that the existing military contacts that South Africa and Britain had remained, and it was new contracts that were banned. And I think the important context here is just the close economic relationship between South Africa and Britain, and at that point will probably underpin a lot of the discussion that we have in in the different episodes but I think in the 1960s it's about a third of South Africa's exports were going to Britain and a third of its imports were coming from Britain so the two countries were so closely aligned and that was probably one of the main reasons why the anti-party movement struggled to get the British government to act in the way that it wanted to in this period. Yeah
1: that real politic dimension is absolutely crucial and even in the aftermath of South Africa uh, withdrawing from the Commonwealth in 1961. There are cabinet papers which explicitly say is that we need to publicly pretend, I mean, maybe pretend is the wrong word, but they need to pretend that we do not have the links that we do to South Africa. We need to demonstrate that we are serious about change, but equally, we're not going to change anything. And it's pretty stark in in those documents. So you've got those economic dimensions, you've got the, the Cold War. We cannot take, take it out, out of that context either. South Africa had banned the Communist Party in 1950 and the Suppression of Communism Act allowed them to basically do whatever they wanted against legitimate political opposition. So the Cold War also becomes a useful cloak that protects the apartheid regime. Now, the rest of the world may have disagreed with the morality of apartheid but the essentially the binary choices of communism versus western capitalism meant that there wasn't really an opportunity for such nuance and that is something that the uh, national party exploited to its own advantage which also meant that the british government was far less likely to intervene and act especially because the anc had links to uh, communists both within South Africa and
0: also abroad as well. Matt, you you spoke about the Cold War and the position of the ANC. How does the ANC fit in with these universal values and and how does their decision to take up armed struggle affect both the British government's response to apartheid as well as the anti-apartheid movement's response more generally? I think that's a really
1: important question. The ANC had been a a liberation movement since 1912 and had been demanding issues of equality and change since its establishment. In 1955, there's the Freedom Charter, which actually sets out the ANC's agenda for change. It is its manifesto, which if anyone reads it, has a lot of very reasonable points, which are essentially Equality and freedom for all. That is essentially the, the core message of it. However, the apartheid state does not listen and responds with repression and aggression towards liberation uh, movements and these demands for social justice, which then, uh, as you just mentioned, in the wake of the Sharpeville massacre, Unconte um with Siswe is formed in 1961. So basically, the ANC have said, we've been asking for 50 years for change. We've got absolutely nowhere, asking nicely, and then violence is the, the only way in which we can respond. This is also connected to various other liberation struggles that are occurring across the world, notably on the African continent at this period, you've got Algeria, um, and also things that occurred in Kenya, but also that's connected to other global movements too. But fundamentally, the ANC's move to the armed struggle is one of several components To its strategy. So although the anti-apartheid movement in the UK may actually be quite wary and actually tries to disavow itself from the armed struggle wherever it can to avoid the accusations of it supporting a a violent organisation, the ANC is also demanding international advocacy, international solidarity and the international isolation of South Africa. It has a, a holistic package would be the best description of it. The armed struggle is just one part of it mainly because the apartheid state is not listening. So it does create a bit of a of a tightrope in one sense, because it does mean that the critics of the anti-apartheid movement and also the ANC can just point to the fact that it has an armed wing and is beginning um, a violent struggle against the apartheid state. But equally, when you look at it, there are lots of different other elements to it and also fits into a global picture of anti-colonial um, or anti-minority state um, struggles.
2: I think one thing I would just I would add to what Matt is saying about the anti-apartheid movement's approach to the armed struggle, I think although there was some some weirdness about how that would be received and actually the way in which it was received did cause them some issues, as Matt said, because a lot of people looked at it and, and thought that's not the right way to conduct your struggle. There was a, a lot of sympathy within the movement for the plight of the ANC and why the reasons why they had taken up armed struggle. So they were definitely sympathetic to that, they, as Matt says, to the 50 years of peacefully protesting, and they were sympathetic to the ideas, but they didn't try to emphasise that as much because it caused them some problems with the wider public as well, And particularly in this 1960s and 1970s period where they're trying to build up their support. Yeah, The armed struggle was one, continued to be an issue for them in their bid to attract a broad-based support.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that it's one of these issues where if you define violence, it's violence being perpetrated by the South African state against the black majority population was institutional and deeply embedded within the fabric of society. So whilst we're not sympathising with the decision to take up arms after 1960, from a strategic perspective, it does just form one component of a larger strategy by the ANC, which was obviously then expounded upon and used to fearmonger British government into not taking action throughout this period by the National Party, relying on overtly racist tropes around law and disorder. But then also this added element of Britain is a key player within the Cold War structure. And if the National Party's argument against taking action against apartheid, well, you're going to upset the Cold War order and you're going to give more power to the communists if you were to heed to the demands of the ANC. So that that seems like an effective way for those against the anti-apartheid movement to discredit it, while it wasn't the, like you mentioned, Matt, it wasn't the overall objective of the ANC and the anti-apartheid struggle it seems to have been massively drawn out of context to undermine the entire anti-apartheid movement especially in Britain yeah.
2: Edward I was just going to add as well on, on building on what you're saying there the anti-apartheid movement itself was also branded as a communist organization which also really hampered its appeal to the British public more generally I mean and you speak to activists about that and they say yeah they were communists within the anti-party movement. But it, as we discussed in the 1950s, anti-party activism was built on this like, religious, humanitarian aspect. And a lot of its supporters were not communists, but it was given this label of, of communism because of its loyalty to the ANC and the, the Congress Alliance, which had caused them some difficulties in, in this 1960s, 70s period.
1: And just going on from what Chris had just said there, we must remember that the ANC is an umbrella organisation. The anti-apartheid movement is an umbrella organization too. They've got singular goals on the overthrow of the apartheid state and achieving change in South Africa. But something I'm sure we'll talk about in future episodes, but is that the anti-apartheid movement itself is a broad spectrum of people who have very different ideological um, and activist and also um, even perhaps moral positions on The South African question. And so, yes, while there was quite clearly a a strong leftist dimension to the anti-apartheid movement, that is not the whole picture. And to paint the anti-apartheid movement in that way is a massive disservice to not only the organisation, but also to the activists within it. So again, it's easy to to cast aspersions about the anti-apartheid movement. But once you peel back the lid, there is just so much difference um, within it. Um, which are actually complementary in many ways. You know, and that actually does lead to some of its longer term successes. But again, I'm sure that's a question for another day, but it's something we should bear in mind.
0: It seems like with the anti-apartheid movement, at least as an idea, there is momentum gaining as seeing it as a collective idea based on these universal values that you spoke about earlier, Chris, throughout the nineteen sixties. So how did that evolve uh, into the 1970s when we have the growth of, on the one hand, international institutions, but also there seems to be a rise in individualism ideologically and a move to neoliberalism from the collective uh, counterculture of the 1960s? How did did the anti-apartheid movement evolve into these changing ideologies in the 1970s?
2: Yeah, I think the, the 1960s is a difficult period. I mean, so was the 1970s as well. But the 1960s was particularly difficult and the successes were, were limited. And, and at that point, the anti-party movement, as we've discussed, is focusing on lobbying as well as its sort of more grassroots activity. But as we go into the 1970s, the anti-party movement is disillusioned with the Labour government and its failure to meet its words and actions and moves to focus more on building up its grassroots in the 1970s. They actually have quite a bit of a, well, one of their sort of major successes in this period is actually in 1970 with the Stop the 70 Tour. And I won't go into huge detail, but essentially there's mass protests around the Springboks Rugby Tour and it comes to Britain in 1969. And you might have seen clips of the pitch invasions before. And those protests lead eventually to the Labour government to step in and cancel the South African cricket team's proposed tour the following year to Britain as a direct result of anti-party pressure. So they're going into the 1970s after a major success. I mean, it's not like a game-changing moment but it's, it's, it's worth noting. That in, into the 70s and maybe we'll go into some of the political stuff you mentioned there about rise of individualism but I just wanted to sort of mention that it's also focusing on this idea of economically isolating South Africa and that was partly about these international institutions imposing economic sanctions on the South African regime but it also moves in this 1970s period to looking at individual companies, British companies, and trying to expose their connections to the apartheid. And that's where things like the Barclays boycott that that we'll talk about, that's often quite associated with the anti-apartheid movement and the boycott of Shell sort of stem from. Um, But they were also pressuring institutions like universities to divest as well from South Africa, and really trying to expose this economic relationship between Britain and South Africa, and to get individual companies to disinvest and to, to sort of move out of South Africa and increase the economic pressure on the South African state. Uh, in terms of global development, I suppose this turn to the grassroots is influenced largely by the politics of the late 1960s as well, and, and the sort of radical politics of that time. But yeah, 1970s, focus on economic sanctions, disinvestment as the anti-apartheid movement's main priority. And then perhaps Matt will go into a bit more detail about some of the aspects.
1: Well, I think also so we must remember that the anti-apartheid movement, is often reactive to events that happen within, within South Africa. Now, after 1964 and the Rivonia trials, where Mandela and eight others are sentenced to life imprisonment, the ANC already been banned for four years. Exile has been forced upon many of its supporters. basically means that overt political protest within the country has by and large been quelled. Don't get me wrong, there is still resistance at every level to apartheid at this point, but the overt political opposition has declined. This is, and it has been termed, the so-called golden era of apartheid, where the, the, the life quality for the white population increases exponentially, the economy is good, things are looking relatively rosy. I mean, obviously, that's premised on black exploitation, but to the outside world, things seem as if they're okay. And so it's very difficult for the anti-apartheid movement to drum up support from the broader British public when nothing's being reported, nothing's happening. And so it's not really until the, the, broad, the other changes in Southern Africa with Angola and Mozambique gaining their independence and then the Soweto uprising that there is an uptick in activism and interest in South Africa. So again, this is a, a premise for the reasons why these are the so-called difficult decades for the anti-apartheid movement, because it is struggling to publicize stuff that's not being publicized in South Africa to um, an international community. So that's something else we must really uh, keep, at the, keep in the forefront of our minds, is that it's quite difficult to challenge something when there isn't something to really Uh, create a hook for campaigns off?
0: I think they're both crucial points as you mentioned Chris it's, it's definitely building up to an extent throughout the kind of late 1960s and early 1970s through these public campaigns like the stop the 70s tour and sanctions and the boycotts as well which we're going to speak more directly about next week with companies such like Barclays like you mentioned but then Matt I think that really kind of pins down the main issue in the 1970s is that the anti apartheid movement is always reactive to what's happening in South Africa. So it seems like, if there's as long as there's stability within the state in South Africa, then the British government is less inclined to take action against apartheid. Things like the Sharpville Massacre are. A stain on the British government to an extent, as, as they still have this colonial sense of responsibility for South Africa and for South Africans. But it seems like as the apartheid state gains more control over its citizens and puts more draconian laws emboldening apartheid, then it does become more difficult for the anti-apartheid movement to, to gain any traction in that respect. Yeah, no, just something that... that oh.
2: I should have probably added in my, in my first contribution there about economic aspect and the difficulties that the anti party movement had. It's also related to this idea that becomes quite popular even amongst opponents of apartheid of constructive engagement. So as we talked about earlier about how the, the, the moral question on apartheid had been won, so to speak, in the sense that people from all across the spectrum would condemn apartheid and, and, and w- would say it's sort of fundamentally wrong. But how do you change that. And this argument developed in the the 1970s, particularly around British business, and the anti-party really struggled to refute it because it was essentially that the best way to change the South African system is not to impose sanctions or boycott, which would be harmful to British workers in particular, but also black South Africans. That was the argument that's frequently made, and that actually if you impose sanctions, it it would make life even worse for black South Africans. But that was fundamentally rejected by the ANC anti-party movement. Opponents of apartheid. But yeah, so the idea was that you change from within. There's a lot of controversy in this mid 70s about um, low wages paid by British companies in South Africa. And this idea was that if these British companies can improve working conditions for black South Africans, improve wages, can oppose segregation within their workplaces, that would be the best way to challenge apartheid, change it from within. And this was supported by many trade unionists, and we'll probably talk about a lot more natural. Supporters of the anti-apartheid movement, there was support in the churches for this idea, and there was also support among British business because it allowed them to display their anti-apartheid credent or say that they were anti-apartheid without actually, as Matt said earlier, having to do anything about it, and, and that kind of thing. So, and that was an argument that was really hard to refute for the anti-apartheid movement because I mean, it was it had support from from people who were so-called opponents as well. So that and then in terms of the challenges that they had on this issue of sanctions needs to be understood within this this context of constructive engagement, actually how how powerful a concept it be- became in the 1970s for political elites, business leaders, and then also some anti-apartheid supporters as well.
0: I think that's a crucial point. It's, it's a question that I'll just end on there with the two of you, based on what you brought up there, Chris, is... In the 1970s, it's obviously morally reprehensible as a regime, given the interdependent relationships with businesses, as well as the Cold War and the position of the ANC and decolonisation more broadly. Is apartheid seen as a necessary evil within the British government at this time, rather than something that can be instantly done away with?
1: I think so. I mean, mean, necessary evil brings up all kinds of other questions and other kind of uh thought processes there but the british government demonstrates consistently that it is willing to support the white minority state it asks for change it implements some policies many of which have no teeth at all that say that it can claim to be asking for change. I mean, I know we'll talk about it again in a few weeks' time with, with Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government who keep on saying that they are pursuing a policy of basically constructive engagement. But equally, yeah, the the apartheid state is seen as a government which it is willing to, to back uh, as part of the Cold War strategic dimensions.
2: Yeah, no, I totally agree with with what Matt was just saying there about, and, and that sort of feeds into a lot of the issues that we've talked about, about the Cold War and decolonisation and economic um, links. So I think that, that's a definite point. I, w- I would, if we're, as we're get, probably getting to an end of this episode, I would say that as much as we've talked about this episode being difficult, the anti-party movement, we should also discuss about some of its achievements in this period as well. So there are, as Matt touched on there, there are some rather weak concessions from the British government, particularly the Conservative government comes in in 1970 and they overhaul the voluntary arms embargo which had been in place previously. But then when Labour come back in, in the mid-70s, there is, and particularly after the, the um, events in South Africa, but that leads to some action, more further action on um, arms embargo. And to the extent that's influenced by the anti party movement is, is debatable, but it's certainly in terms of the broader anti party struggle, that is something that's achieved. And also the anti party movement is continuing to build its support in this 1970s period. It has some issues with the trade unions around constructive engagement, but it's doing a lot of grassroots work with trade unionists to try and build up that support base. It's doing the same in churches. The student population were extremely were supportive in this period as well. So there's a lot of groundwork being done particularly the 1970s period, which we're talking about, but there's a lot of groundwork being done which lays the foundations for what comes later. And without that, would the anti-party movement have been in the position to capitalise on the resurgence of of opposition or resistance in South Africa in the late 70s and then into the 1980s? But I think it's important to say that the anti-party movement, despite its difficulties in this period, is doing some solid grassroots work, which is building foundations of the movement to grasp the momentum that comes later.
0: That's a really important point to finish on there, Chris, is that despite its difficulties throughout the 1960s and the 1970s, the anti-apartheid movement is always there and always exists to some extent. So that means that when it comes to something like Soweto, which we'll we'll speak about more in next week, and when it comes to the resurgence of anti-apartheid activism within South Africa, The anti-apartheid movement doesn't need to start afresh in the way that some other activist groups post-Soweto within South Africa need to do. They have this legacy from the late 1950s onwards based on a few key universal values that they can suddenly recharge as we come into the latter 20th century. So I'll end it there, guys. Thank you so much for today's discussion. I think we got loads and loads covered on the anti-apartheid movement throughout the 1960s and 70s. Next week, we're going to go deeper on some of the specific campaigns surrounding uh, boycotts and sanctions and arms embargoes that were briefly mentioned by you guys there. But yeah, thank you again. And I'll speak to you guys soon. Thanks, Thanks, Paul. See you next time. Thanks, Paul. See See you later.